to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Phyllis McCollum and Darcy Fitzgerald to discuss hog pricing in Canada. Phyllis grew up in Eastern Ontario on a commercial cow-calf operation. She pursued a diploma in agriculture and equine management before going to complete her Bachelor of Arts in Agriculture Studies and Economics in 2015 from the University of Lethbridge. After graduating, she briefly worked in agriculture lending in Southern Ontario before moving back to the Ottawa area to work with Canadian Pork Council. As the sector analyst for the council, Phyllis is responsible for business risk management and economic analysis as it pertains to Canadian hog production. Darcy is the executive director of the Pork Producers Development Corporation, referred to as Alberta Pork, located in Edmonton, Alberta. The organization represents the interest of 300 registered commercial hog farmers and approximately 600 smaller backyard producers. Alberta represents approximately 11% of Canada's hog production. So I'd like to welcome Phyllis and Darcy with us today. Thanks for being with us folks and looking forward to our, our next half an hour and 40 minutes of uh, our chat around Canadian pork pricing. Phyllis, maybe we'll start with you. Can you give us a little bit of a high-level overview of how we establish uh, primary pork price here in Canada? For sure. Thanks, Brad, and thanks for um, having us join you today. Yeah, so uh, Canadian pork prices um, essentially are based off of our, of our U.S. market, and so they're, they're established through a, a number of sources there, either through live hog pricing or a, a cutout component now. Uh, or a combination of those. Uh, and so then we, uh, we do a conversion here into Canada on between pounds and kgs and uh, an exchange. And then, um, you know, each of the plants um, do a little bit additional for, for their requirements. But essentially, that's how they're first established and developed here for the Canadian market. Yeah, so it's my understanding too that there are a, a few regional differences in the weekly published prices, at least. Darcy, I'm not sure if you can give us a, a little bit of an overview of how some of those different prices are published across the country. Yeah, like in our case in, in Alberta, what we do is we, we have a consultant that works with us that actually gathers that information and does have farms that, that they work with. And so they, are, they do have real data about what's going on and the pricing, the contracts that are being used. Uh, but, but I think that the primary thing, just like uh, Phyllis had mentioned, is that, you know, we're basing everything off the U.S., um, the USDA published information that's on pricing. Uh, and there's a couple of formulas that are used, and it's every processor, packer, kind of uses something a little different. So they're, they're using a formula number that's recorded and, and captured every day in the U.S., and it's their, it's their prerogative to use that whole number or part of the, what goes into that number. And what you're seeing then is a combination of what might be uh, negotiated pigs. So that's just the pigs that are freely roaming around out there uh, that come to the marketplace and they're purchased. And as we've seen over the last probably 20 years, those pigs really don't exist in a large volume. And some days there's so few of them that the USDA can't publish the number because it would probably identify the packer and or the, the producer that actually sold the pigs. And then you'd know what that individual got paid. And, and so that's how we used to base our market and our pricing is what was the marketplace freely paying? Well, we have very little information on that. And so then we have other types of contracts where it's, I have a contract with a packer and it's based off of some 
number that was derived in pricing, plus it might have, you know, something related to the value that the, the packer receives. And then there's a whole bunch of different combinations of things that go, go together in that, then they become a number. And so some of those numbers that we see are like, you know, it, it, we, we call them by numbers. They're like 201, 204, 206. And if you look at every, every formula, it's a little bit different. And then, then you have these things where it's like an index. So you're taking it at a level of 100. And so everybody get, kind of gets that. And then if you have a good pig and it meets a grid and it weighs a certain amount and it has a nice loin, has so much back fat, now you get a, a, a little higher percentage that fits into this grid. And then that's how you get paid out uh, even more. And then some packers have transportation bonuses or weight bonuses or quality bonuses, all those types of things are in play. And so for every packer that you might potentially go to, uh, you could see a different formula and depending on the time, you might see a, a large swing in price. And you'll see that across the country as well. You tend to make more money in central Canada than I believe probably on the, on the extremes. So why that is, I don't know. Uh, but anyhow, that's the way the market seems to play. That's a good point, Darcy. So for our listeners uh, in Eastern Canada, every week, every Monday morning, first thing Ashley does here in the office is establish a Nova Scotia pork price. Uh, that we publish. It's it's in our regulations. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really mean a damn thing. It's based on when we used to single death sell pigs here in the province about 15 years ago. We've never taken it out of our regulation, but you know, even our establishment of that is based on 100% of the previous week's average of the Ontario price, which again, based off CME and their calculated formula, uh, we spend a little bit of magic adding in the average difference between Quebec and Ontario pricing uh, over the previous quarter, then we put trucking back into the price because uh, the trucking didn't cost us to get to Ontario. So it ends up being about nine cents above. But yeah, no, I, I think it's very different. And, and like you say, based on your packer, they may have different formulas uh, outside of provincial formulas as well. One of the things you, you touched on, Darcy, there, though, was kind of being connected directly to a processor. Either one of you comment on, you know, the proportion of pigs in the country that are contracted versus grown by independents and maybe how that might affect price as well? Uh, well, I'll give it a stab on our, on our end. In Western Canada, it's starting to become quite a bit more and it just depends on where you are. So plant by plant, uh, you know, we have some plants that, that have no owned pigs. Uh, we have some plants that have maybe a quarter to a third of the percentage. And then we have a plant that actually that's located in Quebec and in Alberta that probably has more than 50% and growing of the pigs that actually go into the plant belong to the, the company. So they're very integrated in their process of what they do. Yeah, Phyllis, I don't know if you have any more, you know, general information or, or general numbers from across the country or not. Yeah, I think uh, the last time we did a bit of a calculation trying to establish, you know, how many were kind of on an integrated system. Um, I believe it was just over about 40% across the country um, would have been accounted for on, a, on an integrated marketing mechanism. So there are still independent producers out there, but we are seeing more and more movement to the integrated marketing. Um, you know, a lot of it is packers moving down into the production segment. Uh, whereas you see a little bit uh, in the U.S., it's producers getting together and buying uh, packing plants and moving up the supply chain. But, um, you know, we, we are moving that way. And I think that has changed the uh, marketing dynamic 
for hogs in Canada, just as we, we continue to push towards that kind of a system. One of the other things that often interests me as well, we export 60 to 70% of our hogs. A lot of those hogs don't end up in the U.S. So why the heck do we actually price our, our pigs based on a market in which we don't play in? And how do we go about starting to fix that? Well, I, I would say, you know, you know, Brad, probably the, the biggest thing is that we traditionally have the U.S. as Canada's major trading partner. And so we do compete into the U.S. with our pork products. And then internationally, where Canada sells seventy uh, percent, you know, a portion of that goes to the U.S. as well. But the the other customers are are also customers uh, that use U.S. pork. And so the two countries, while we have a great relationship to be able to move pigs from Canada into the U.S. and pork products back from the U.S. to Canada, uh, and Canadian pork products into into the U.S. as well too, we also compete in other countries. Uh, with a similar product. I, I would say our packers probably do something a little different than the packers in the U.S., the, the larger ones anyhow. Um, I think our, our packers are able to do, you know, more custom work that does, doesn't maybe happen with the larger packers in the U.S. just because of their line speeds and, and what they do and how they facilitate their customers and, and what they do. But having said that, um, you know, if you're competing against somebody else who has something that's similar to you and, you know, and viewed kind of similarly in the eyes of the consumer, then I guess you have to kind of base yourself off the same price. The, the only thing I would say is I, you know, if we get the same price, you know, for competing in the same area, maybe we should get the same price too, you know, without deductions and things and, and, you know, fudge factors and magical numbers and formulas and stuff that, you know, kind of lose things. But having said that, I mean, being very transparent, I think there is a lot of opportunity for the packer and the producer to work together. Because at the end of the day, they're at the bottom of the totem pole, if you will, when it comes to who gets the, the lion's share of the money. There is data, you know, that's published uh, since 1969, happens to be when Alberta Pork became an organization. But since 1969, the USDA is, is followed, I think, on a monthly basis, you know, who gets the, the proportion of the value of the pig. And it has steadily climbed in those 51 or 52 years now uh, that the, the retailer gets by far the most amount of money, the packer second, and the producer is third. And, you know, at one time, the producer used to get the lion's share of the money, and it was the reverse of way it is, the way it is today. And that kind of justified about who puts the most work into the end product that the consumer buys. And the person who puts the most work into it is the farmer. And today, we're not seeing the return for the farmer for that huge investment that they put in for the amount of time that that pig spends on the farm. I'm not sure, Phyllis, if you have any comment around international price and market access? I think Jesse covered it pretty well on the U.S. side. I mean, we, we have a great you know, marketing partner with the U.S. right next door, but it, it does uh, have its own set of challenges. Um, and I think we continue to try to develop our market share abroad. And again, Darcy said, you know, like we're competing with similar products, but um, not necessarily the exact same product. And so our, our Canadian partners and our stakeholders here um, work, you know, incredibly well to ensure that, you know, Canada is a, a leader in, in pork exports and wanting to move product into new, to new market opportunities. And so I think it's really important that we continue to make advancements. And uh, I mean, it's great that we have our, our partners right next door um, and we do a lot of business with them. But as we can see over time, 
Um, we have moved into other markets and changed our marketing share in, in quite a few countries. I think just over 80 countries see Canadian product throughout the year, and that will continue to grow it as we continue to grow markets. I just want to maybe go back and, and touch on something that you said, Darcy, and it kind of leads into my next kind of train of thought around, you know, what the problem with the structure is. And you had made the comment that historically, those who put the most effort into a product got rewarded the most, and that flipped sometime through the 50s and 60s, but we see that it's transitioning back there. So fundamentally, you know, how do we get more money back to the producer as part of the either current pricing structure or, or how do we change the pricing structure uh, to more accurately reflect that effort? Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little bit too kumbaya-ish, you know, <laughs> like I'm just thinking that everybody will hold hands and sing a song and work together as good kids, you know, at the playground. But, but you know, if you look at it from a business perspective, I mean, you know, I, I think Quebec's done a really good job. If we wanted to use them as an example in Canada and the rest of us could maybe use a little bit off their, their game page. I think they they have a, a culture and understanding and a long history of trying to work together. First of all, as producers, they're the only guys left, you know, standing in Canada in the pork industry that have somewhat of a what is still a single desk. You know, they 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 operate through their association uh, to negotiate a price. And you know, if you look at that and then look at how they've decided to go forward with this idea of business and business planning and acting like businesses and working with your customer, the customer they have discovered is their packer. And then looking at, you know, what is revenue and expenses and, and the image and how do you bring all that together? I mean, there's benefit to the, to the packer in this as well too. Like by paying more, the producer can now have the things that, that are required by the packer to sell to the customer. Like the customer for the packer is the consumer who buys pork the customer for the producer is the packer who buys pigs. And, you know, somehow within that flow, if we're all working together to get what the customer wants, then we should share that value. And I think seeing that cutout related pricing that's going on in Quebec right now, since their last uh, negotiation, it does reflect back on that you're sharing value. And then, you know, once those two partners, the packer and the producer have figured it out and can work well together and, you know, iron out some of their differences and to the benefit of both. I think they then can work together to go after the, the other guys who are actually taking the lion's share of the value and, and say, you know what, we've got a great product and we can do stuff for you and here's what we can do, but we need more of that money back and work together on it. And you see that in so many other industries that's gone on. And, you know, I, I think we can do that. We, we're not that far away, but I think it may have to be packer by packer, like a packer group of, and then the producers that work with that packer to work on that type of thing. Here are upcoming events brought to you by Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers. Our students learn to solve real-world problems in a friendly, hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study. Dal researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters, or designing smarter Christmas trees, Dal Agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more. Visit dal.ca slash agriculture. The Nova Scotia cattle producers have started their on-farm preconditioning pilot project where cattle preconditioning services are available to members on-farm. Please visit nscattle.ca forward slash preconditioning for more information. The Nova Scotia cattle producers are also hosting a turning pasture and foraging to profit webinar on April 6th by Zoom. 
with presenters from OMAFRA and Frenia, please register at nscattle.ca. Regular feeder sales occur every second Tuesday through the winter and spring. The next one happens on April 12th and 26th at 10 a.m. at Atlantic Stockyards. Please check their website, atlanticstockyards.com, for a full schedule and sale information. The 49th Annual Maritime Beef Testing Society and Breeding Stock Sale will occur on April 2nd online by the LMS and in person at the test station. Please visit maritimebeeftestation.ca for additional information. The Nova Scotia cattle producers have two programs available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program and the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both the programs have application deadlines of both June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many Nova Scotia programs open for 2022 for a complete list of programs as well as applications and guidelines. Please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. Yeah, Darcy, I, I agree so much. And, and I think there's a lot of strides can be made by value chain coordination and making sure that all the risks and rewards are shared appropriately along that production and value chain. And uh, we really haven't seen it. I think often producers and processors have been in more of an adversarial role with one another than a working together. And, you know, if they just sat down, shook hands and looked each other in the eye, I think we can move this, uh, this discussion a lot further, a lot faster. One of the things there that, that you mentioned is, is cutout pricing. So for those who maybe don't follow this file uh, as closely as others, or it might be a new concept for some, can uh, maybe if you describe what cutout pricing is versus uh, a current pricing model used by most processors? In my mind, simplistically, like just to, to say, you know, I mean, the cutout, the word cutout and what we look at from our perspective is that the packers paid so much for different cuts of meat. The USDA then gathers that information and reconstructs the pig and tries to give a value of what of what the packer is making off the pig. Now, there's some parts that, that aren't aren't included, and that would be like the offals, the stuff that we normally wouldn't eat, but they still derive a lot of money, the innards, the organs, that kind of stuff, the head you know, all those kinds of things that don't really fall into play to what is the cutout. And the cutout value then becomes the primal cuts of meat that are sold. And then they just put it back together again and say, okay, well, here is minus those awful parts is what the value of the pig is. And what we're after is a portion of that. So, you know, in Quebec's case, they they operate between 90 and 100%. The producer gets between 90 and 100% of that cutout value they don't get any of the awful parts um, because th those are sold by the packer and they're hard to, to sell and do stuff with but depending on the marketplace you're allowed into you know that that kind of thing then allows us to kind of ride along with what the packer is making by using that cutout value so if the if the packer makes lots of money on through the cutout the various cuts of meat then the producer would make lots of money and if the packer starts to lose uh, and the cutout value goes down then the producer would lose as well too but but the beauty of that system is when the packer and producer who are in the value chain together and very closely connected, when they lose, start to lose money, I think they work really hard together to figure out how to, how to come back up over top that zero line and make money together. And what we have today most mostly in our industry is we have kind of a, an opposite cycle. So when the packer's making lots of money, producer's not. And then it crosses paths and goes the other way. And so there's no incentive for us to work together. And, and that is the nice thing about coming together by having a single system that actually pays on cutout. Now you can have bonuses and other things that fit into that if you want, like however the, the packer and producer can make it work. 
but that that is the key essential to the the cutout value is you know the the meat parts that are sold that are recorded and then they, putting it back together again to come out with what is the carcass value uh, and then all the individual parts and and that's a nice thing that the USDA collects and you can see that every day it's posted and so you know everybody everybody has a look at that and surprisingly uh, when they first came out with this in the U.S., my understanding is that packers weren't too happy to do it. And then once they got rolling onto it, whenever the USDA can actually publish those numbers, the packers are a little bit not too happy because <laughs> they want to be able to see and gauge how they're doing compared to everybody else. So it, it's become a good tool for them as well. And on that, I mean, now it's seen how that has rolled out um, in the U.S. And there's now discussions in Canada on how, you know, we can establish that pricing or, or look towards price transparency so we can have uh, more data around us and, and have the ability to um, potentially move to a system that we can also see those prices on a regular basis. And, and I think that will be important for, um, you know, both packer and producer. You know, like Darcy said that, you know, at the beginning, it might have been a little bit difficult, but now it's something that they rely on as a, as a data source point. And I think, um, you know, as we as we move along in this discussion, mandatory price reporting could be something that the Canada could take on either as a potentially voluntary or mandatory, um, but it, it will be something that will help um, the industry move forward and, and have another way of pricing hogs in Canada. Yeah, I, I, I've always said it's really tough to make any decision without the appropriate data to make that decision and, and having that pricing information and being able to share it amongst everybody, I think would help us uh, quite a bit. So, you know, the, this is a file that CPC has been working on for, for quite a while now and having the discussion around price reporting, whether it's mandatory or voluntary, what needs to happen, I guess, from a producer point of view or, or from a government point of view to, to make that happen, understanding that the mechanics uh, are not always as easy as we'd like them to be. Uh, so right now, I am working on building the business case for what mandatory price reporting could look like in Canada for Canadian hogs. We're essentially um, putting together the pieces currently. So it's understanding what we currently have access to in the way of uh, data sets, both here in, in Canada and in the U.S., as we use many of them here. But it's then identifying uh, the gaps that need to be filled and the reasoning why mandatory price reporting would fill those gaps. Uh, we have to make a uh, solid business case if we have to move beyond voluntary into regulatory uh, changes we need to have a solid business case as to why that would be um, the way to move and, and to require the packers to report um, this new data set we're hoping that um, there's potentially a, a solution at the voluntary level first but we are right now building that case and, and we'll be discussing those in the coming months I think there's a lot of opportunity to fill some of those uh, price transparency gaps and then provide another, uh, another source for our producers to feel that they have um, something else to negotiate with when they're talking to their packer partners. So what else can producers do to help increase the value of the pigs? I, I know that uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the last two or three years uh, in transitioning from uh, the CQA program over to the CPE program and, and working with packers to pay for that on-farm food safety uh, and animal care program. Darcy, I think you've probably followed this file uh, as close or more closely than anyone. Uh, do you have any comments around that and, and how we monetize some of the things that farmers are already doing with the processors? 
Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a good question, and it, it's you know a, an argument that started off with producers looking at it when the Canadian Pork Excellence Program first was announced, which is just a modification. And I, I use a, one of our producers talked about you know you're in grade one now you're going to grade two or three. You know, it's time to make a change. You know, and so you're going to change it a little bit, and it's a little clearer, and you're, maybe there's a little more information and protocols put into it, and and some procedures. And, and so that's where we're at. We have this really nice national package uh, with some really excellent people across the country who deliver it, that work for producers. And it's something that's recognized by uh, CFIA, just like the, the, the CQA program and the ACA, which is the animal care part was. But now we have this nice, neat package in the CPE program, Canada Pork Excellence, which really looks at putting care, food safety, and traceability together, which is another package that's there. So now we have this nice little package that's put together. Everybody does it. It's not only noted nationally, but internationally, our partners look at that and go, excellent program. You guys really should work on that. But I think the problem is when you're, when the contracts, the typical contract that's out today for a producer is a delivery contract. So the contract just says, okay, you can deliver uh, 200 pigs to my plant, my processing plant every week for the next five years. And you're going to get, here's the formula based off of something we're not sure is going to happen in the future, but it has nothing to do with what your cost of production is. And then all of a sudden I say to you, okay, well, well guess what, Brad, uh, we're into year one of the contract. I need you to now change and do this CPE thing. It's got more paperwork, more time to spend on, but we're not changing the contract. Like you're not getting paid anymore for this. It's just expected you're going to do that. And then, you know, we come up with some other things. I, I'll use us. I'm not sure where you guys sit in, you know, in Eastern Canada, but I can tell you here, like, you know, this carbon tax thing, nobody's got that built into their, into their contract. Suddenly I got a, you know, I got a big barn and a cold winter day. I got a, I got a heat. It's costing me, you know, X dollars per ton of carbon that I'm using and it keeps going up. And I've got no way to recoup that. And then maybe there's something else that comes along and says, okay, well, you have to do this environmental thing that you, know, you need to show us all these other things you're doing. But I have no way to measure that. Or, you know, the government comes along and says, and, you know, I'm not against it, but, you know, about saying, you're going to have to pay more dollars to your employees. Like we're going to up their wages and give them these other extra benefits. And you start to say, well, but I have no way of recouping that because I just have a delivery contract. And so I, I think that is one thing that we really have to try to grasp at when we keep adding more and more things onto the producer. Now, if we share the value, again, going back to this value chain sharing, those that put in effort and energy, you know, into the product that's finally delivered to the consumer, then I think we can look at that, how we share that equally. And I think if the producer and the packer had reasonable conversations like you know on a more timely basis to look at how is the industry changing what has changed what needs to be done to satisfy consumers and how will we extract those dollars to pay for it i think if we look at it in real time in real dollars i i don't think there's any other industry really that still gets kind of paid the same <laughs> you know over the last 50 years like nothing's changed but you have to do so much more and i think as consumers we just expect from other products well okay i guess Things went up and we can always harp and say, well, TV prices sure have gone down. You know, well, maybe the technology has improved and it's easier to do. But, you know, in some cases, when you have to put more and more work into something, that usually the price goes up and we're not seeing that. The two industries that have always amazed me in Canada are the hog industry uh, and the way pricing is established, as well as the blueberry 
uh, or wild blueberry industry as well. Uh, their pricing model, I would argue, is even worse than the hog one uh, because they ship their product and then the processor decides weeks, if not months later, uh, what and if and when they're going to pay. So we'll have an episode on that a little further down the road. But I think back to your point a, a little bit, Darcy, is you know it, it's really easy to plan for the future if you can have a stabilized or predictable price. And I think that's really been you know, one of the key things for producers or hog producers especially is anytime you're reliant on market data that you have no control over, or you don't have control over your price, it actually removes that predictability and stability. I have to agree with that. And I mean, like there's a said, you know, some of our producers could be on, you know, three to five year contracts and I, that does, you know, allow you some stability. You know, you, you, you know, as long as you keep producing the same quality of hogs, then you, you are going to get paid. And then it removes that risk factor from having to deal instead maybe on the cash market, which could be extremely volatile on any day of the week. But then you have these changes along the way in, in cost reduction that need to be accounted for. And, uh, and we have seen that, you know, come to light. And I, I do think that there's going to be, well, I sure hope there's going to be opportunity for, you know, packers and, and producers to come to the table and say, you know, I, I, you know, we see these changes happening. And we hope that, you know, we can work together to, to sort them out. But it, it allows some risk mitigation, one less thing to deal with, I guess. But it also has to have a little bit of a, you know, that sort of slush factor in there that, you know, as, as things change, um, you know, pricing has to change as well. You know, and, and there are, I think, very few markets that we see that, that don't um, sort of float and, and allow for a little bit of movement along the way over more than six months, right? It's you're you're locked in for quite some time. If I could, you know, and 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 I think it is like you know the little bit of an analogy I always try to use because it's really hard to explain this to consumers too. Like you know, they, how could you guys be losing money for so long, and still be in business? Like I and I, I said, yeah, no, I know it's crazy. I mean, it's like it's like you going to work and you get paid whatever twenty dollars an hour, and your boss one day decides, uh, no, today you're only getting. You know, but you still have bills to cover off with your 20 bucks an hour. Like you, you, those didn't change. And then, you know, a couple months down the road, you owe your boss $10 an hour. Like that's insane. Like, how can that be? And, but you still have all your bills. And then, so, you know, you look at it and say, okay, well, these, these pork producers, they're looking at it. If you take a five-year average, suddenly, you know, maybe they made a dollar a pig you know, on every pig and you go, how could that be possible? Well, it's because they're living off of like a lot of property or other equities that they have that they put into this. They've invested a lot of money into the facilities and what it takes to run a farm. They can't walk away from it. So they just have to keep going, hoping that, you know, the rainbow comes out and they find that pot of gold and, you know, keeps them going for another year or two. Because unlike, you know, a person who's working at a job, farmer just can't get up and quit and change what he's doing. Um, because he's built a very specialized business and he's put a lot of money into that. And now what are we going to do? Uh, whereas if, you know, myself, if I decided, well, I, Hey, don't tell my bosses this, but if I decided that, you know, I'm going to have to move on because they're not paying me enough, like I don't have a lot invested compared to them. You know, when it comes to infrastructure, uh, I haven't put all that into place. And, and so as an employee, it's a little easier to do that, you know, and some businesses can convert things quicker too. Uh, if they have to, but if I'm just renting out a warehouse space, I, you know, I mean, that's different, right? It's pretty easy just to put other things back into the warehouse. But when you specialize down to like a lot of things in agriculture, 
And we've kind of put people in that boat to farmers, we need you to be more and more specialized. Uh, when you do that, you can't switch. You, you have just too much dollars riding on that system. And when we have very few buyers, they know that. And that's what we have going on in the hog industry is that there's very few buyers for these many producers who have put a lot of dollars into this to build a very big industry. But one other thing, Brad, I was going to throw in here that always the hiccup that we always forget about, you know, kind of is sometimes is trade or in, in our case in Canada, because we base everything off U.S. pricing. If something happens in the U.S. and the price changes there, then suddenly, woohoo, guess what? It changes here too. But our packer may still be getting into places and doing things and still making money. But the producers, we're only seeing what, what's reflected in that U.S. posted price every day. And so if they have problems, we have problems, you know, which is yeah. kind of a weird system. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the weekend at March 25th, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.41 per kilogram, up one cent from last week. And Ontario base price was up one cent from last week to a price of $2.32 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $2.36 per kilogram, up two and a half cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle at Atlantic beef products remains at $2.83 on the rail. And Ontario live steers sold for $1.69, moving up two cents from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was $2.98, up four cents from last week. Call cattle and stockyards sold for $1.17, upward change of 21 cents from last week, while rail price at Atlantic Beef Products was $1.91, up 10 cents from last week. Calls in Ontario average 94 cents, up 2 cents from the prior week, and 96 cents in Quebec, moving up 4 cents. Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards average $128, down $28. And good dairy beef bob calves averaged $223, up $38 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up $0.32 cents to a price of $2.09 per pound. Calves in Quebec were $2.72, an increase of $0.32 cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland is $14.60 per kilogram, and mutton sits at $6.50 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards average $3.47 per pound at 62 pounds, ranging from $2.90 to $3.85. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average $4.23 per pound at 59 pounds, ranging from $2.85 to $4.55. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they averaged Three ninety-five per pound at seventy-four pounds, ranging from three eighty-five to four hundred five. And in Ontario, sixty-five to seventy-nine pound lambs average three ninety-two at seventy-one pounds. Ewes Ontario averaged a dollar fifty-four at one hundred fifty-three pounds, ranging from forty-five cents to three dollars and sixty cents. Make sure you check your association's websites for additional pricing information. Yeah, so I promised myself I wasn't going to wade into this because we could probably spend an hour or two uh, talking about it alone. But what type of safety nets do producers have uh, and how effective are they in managing that margin? The big, nasty, ugly one we always like to talk about is agri-stability and how effective it is. You know, I shake my head every day and ask producers why they still produce hogs. But, you know, I think you said it very clearly. A lot of folks are at a point where they got to keep going. 
Um, and if they average out over the long term, then that's they're able to lose some and make some here and there. What tools are producers using outside of contracting and integration to minimize their risk exposure? So, you know, you mentioned that we, we can start right off with agri-stability and it's had its conversations along the way for sure. But, you know, as we um, look to CAP 2.0 and changes to be made to the program, essentially the, the hog industry is very well placed in the agri-stability program. We're probably one of the highest uh, participating sectors in agri-stability and, you know, it takes very little very little drop in revenue for the hog industry to actually trigger payments. So it's a program that actually works really effectively for, for the hog industry because we have so much volatility. As we have that one to rely on, um, it, it's not going to save us from catastrophic losses. And so, so that is some of the discussions we have had. And so, um, you know, there was a push to go from 70 to 85 percent, back up to 85 percent the way it used to be. And then through discussions, we had talked about potentially changing the compensation rate instead of the trigger um, to 85%. So you would still have to have a reduced margin down to 70%, but then uh, would receive a larger payment for your losses. And so there was some uh, lobbying done from the CPC on that, but those changes weren't put in place. So it's still a program that works really effectively for the hog industry. And I think our producers continue to participate. Agri-recovery is also used sometimes by our provinces, depending on, on losses. Um, there was some agri-recovery programs put in place during COVID uh, for hogs that got backed up in certain provinces and couldn't get to processing on time. Unfortunately, agri-insurance is only on the crop side, um, and there isn't really a program for the hog industry uh, in that space. Um, that is an effective use uh, of dollars. So uh, the Western Livestock Price Insurance Program would probably be the closest one, but there's usually very few hogs that are that are on that uh, program just due to the premiums that are required. From conversations with other producers, I've been told that um, they can more effectively move their risk into another another risk management system instead of using that program. But I had a recent conversation with FCC, and to be honest, hog producers are actually doing a really good job at reducing their, their risks from a survey group that they have. The hog participants have about 80, I think it was 88% of their risks are mitigated by some risk mitigation factors. So if you feel that this is a risk on your farm, you have a system in place to mitigate that. And so I thought that was a really information that our producers aren't sort of just flying by the seat of their pants, that they have found ways of mitigating their risks on farm. And, you know, there, there are still some that are out there that either they don't have a risk mitigation program for, it's sort of just something that you have to deal with in the business, or it's not an attainable mitigation risk. So a little bit, if there's a gap somewhere that, you know, we need to create a new program to fill that, then that could still be open for discussion. But I thought that it was pretty nice to see that, you know, our, our producers have found ways of reducing their risks on farm and ensuring that, you know, they can have um, viable operations as we continue to move through volatile prices and marketing. Yeah, I, I might just add to that if I could too, you know, the, there's another side of it too is you know, when you look at these programs, and thankfully they're there to help, but if we look at these programs, they should only really actually be used when there's a disaster, like something goes bad. And I, and I think if we go back to the crop insurance side of things and look at that, you know, you're mostly getting it because of the weather, right? <laughs> you know, bang, oh, I got a hailstorm. Okay, well, I lost my crop, you know. <laughs> 
oh, I got a drought, you know, oh, I lost my crop, you know, so it's weather oriented. And so you can see that, okay, well, we needed something. Otherwise the poor crop guy would, you know, depending on where he lives, could really, you know, suffer badly, you know, if he didn't have some sort of insurance that he bought into and had some help. And, you know, I mean, thank goodness the government's pay so much of it, uh, but you know, there it is to help out, but it is weather dependent, not price dependent. And I think in our situation, like we have a lot of stuff that's, let's just say a lot of it's related to what we get paid to start off with. So if we go back to that, hey, let's share the value, we probably wouldn't be showing up very often to the offices to pick up a check for the you know, business risk management, <laughs> you know, because we'd have already had that covered off by getting the price we should have gotten paid to begin with. That wouldn't have been an issue. But again, when we have a disaster, when something happens, then that's when that insurance could kick in. There are some ones like Phyllis mentioned, like the, the Western Livestock Price Insurance Program. Premiums are really high because they're like, I just think of all the things that are built into it, just make the premiums too high. There's a few used it. Uh, they, they're very knowledgeable about how to use it and, and it has worked on occasion for them. Uh, so we don't really want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think it could be adjusted to be a better program for producers. One that's also there, and I guess it shouldn't really be used as a risk management tool to a large extent, but it, it is. You have to be a good predictor. Uh, and it's kind of like gambling and it's called the futures. And so you buy into a futures option that looks out into, you know, the next 40 weeks, most of them will go out at least that far. And you buy either weeks, months, or like stretches of months, probably up to 40 weeks in most cases. And, and I think, you know, there are some banks that are in Eastern Canada that actually provide longer term ones. In the U.S., they're much more adverse to using these kinds of things and, you know, sitting down with the packer banker and working together on their pricing and what they're going to do and make sure costs are covered. But here it's a bit of a gamble. And so what we've seen in this wonky world uh, in COVID times, you know, where the prices just skyrocketed this spring and it's really high this summer, but it looks like it's starting to drop off because of the, the Chinese marketplace and stuff. But, you know, producers coming out of a bad time seeing these numbers and they rise a little bit, say to themselves, I better lock in right now because I just got to get my, my costs covered. I can't afford to go back in the hole again. And then all of a sudden it just rockets up and they're like, well, I'm already locked in and I can't move that price. So they, they lose out on what is if I just ran the free marketplace. And a friend of mine who used to be in the beef industry always said to me, there's two kinds of guys, the guy who has futures and kind of locks things in and just feels comfortable. There's a level of comfort. And the guy who just runs... The free market sees where it goes. He said, the only difference I can see at the end of the time is one guy slept at night and the other guy never did. <laughs> you know, so you decide which one that is, but you know, it, it is that way. It's, it's a bit of a gambling risk and it all comes back down to how we start off with the contract of sharing value and doing things. And if we don't have a good system in place, then we have to do all these risk mitigations. Yeah, really good points, Darcy. And I think you're right. I think if we could all agree on a, a better pricing structure, there would be a lot easier way to go about this. And, you know, to your point around contracting versus cash, that's right on point as well is you're either going to gain big, lose big, or, you know, if you want to have a more bankable, predictable price and, and play it safe, they always say hindsight's 2020. So I'm, I'm sure everybody that closes out a contract either wishes they did or didn't buy that contract. Uh, no matter what it's for. Uh, but the other thing you kind of touched on there, and I think it's going to be our last uh, line of discussion before we check out for the day, is around uh, market interruption and how different market interruption will affect price. And I, I think a really big thing we've seen recently that we can all really relate to uh, is COVID and the, the price impact it had 
uh, last summer in the summer of 2020 uh, with plant closures and market uncertainty and uh, shift of um, more retail and, and food service back to more of uh, consumer retail. And really just trying to get that all sorted out. And you know, one of the good things about hog prices is they're predictable. They should be the highest between like weeks 22 and, and weeks 37 or 38 of the year. And when I look at my price chart that I send out to producers every now and then, I look at 2020 and go, well, it never makes sense, but it made less sense last year. How do we prepare for market interruptions? And how do those major market interruptions affect producers in an already volatile pricing structure? It's a complicated one, that's for sure. Uh, through COVID, we definitely saw market interruptions and you know we continue to uh, work through backlogs and ensuring that work workers are at the plants to run at full capacity. You know, I, I think it's still the discussion between packers and producers, you know, a little bit more of that relationship building and ensuring that, you know, there's conversation going on and it's not, you know, calling everyone every day, but it's still really important that we keep that business uh, relationship together so we can work through the issues that we run into when we we're get into market interruptions such as, as covid or if, uh, you know, something such as African swine fever were to arrive, which would be catastrophic to the industry. I think the price interruptions we saw last year on market hogs and on um, isoweens going to the U.S. were really hard hit. Um, you know, when we have producers who are paying the trucking on little pigs to the U.S., and shipping them just so they can move them out of the barns. Um, that's a really difficult situation. And, you know, ensuring that we can help our producers um, move pigs around and having programs available for when we run into those, those situations is important. But when we, when we talk about the, the impact on prices of, for a disease outbreak, I think a lot of the work that we're doing right now on price transparency will be important. If we were to disconnect from the U.S. in any way, shape, or form, if either the U.S. was to break with a disease or if we were, uh, we have to be able to establish a price for the hogs that do still need to move. And having that availability of data to do that um, will be essential or something else will be established in its place immediately. The market system will work itself out, but having more data around us to be able to do that will, will be definitely in the best interest of everybody. We've learned a lot already through COVID on this, and we continue to work towards establishing that so it's better put together if a disease outbreak were to occur. I think what we saw in COVID really was that by being connected to the U.S. marketplace, their troubles fell onto our producers. So as the plants closed, the backup of pigs there dropped the price because there was too many pigs to go through the plant and it made our price lower. But yet we were still moving pigs and like, and I'll just use the Western Canadian side of things, you know, relatively plant closure free. I mean, there was a few little hiccups here and there, but not, nothing like what we saw in Quebec. And so we were riding quite smoothly. And as a matter of fact, pigs from Ontario were coming out to Manitoba and to, to Alberta. There was actually even some into Saskatchewan into the, the, the federal plant there. But we saw that, you know, being picked up by those plants to, to keep pigs moving. And then, you know, you have to look at it on the flip side too. Um, you know, when things start to change again and it gets better and the prices start to come up because now we don't have enough pigs in the U.S. to fill the void and then that their price rises. So that gives us more money for ours. And our pigs are still flowing through, but our packers 
also ran into some challenges too with like you know trying to separate people on the line not being able to do the same cuts they used to do to get that extra value what they were selling and then they had to throw in on top of them like in canada and i think we're somewhere right now still at 70 percent of our plants can't export to china so that little political hiccup and the things that go on there uh you know really affect then the whole system as well too but Again, the, the packer pricing, you know, what he gets paid versus what the producer gets paid off the U.S. are two separate things. And so the system does have a bit of a problem there. You know, it's kind of a yin and yang. We're not sure who's, who's getting what uh, at what time. But it, COVID certainly did show us one thing. Well, I'll say two things. Uh, the second thing is apparently we only eat bacon in restaurants because <laughs> bacon went down. Like you couldn't get rid of bacon, like bellies on the marketplace were like, rock bottom. We put the rest of the pork through retail. So I think the beef industry actually had a bigger hit trying to move products because I mean, a lot of it goes into steaks and ground uh, meat that was going into restaurant trade. And when they were closed, they weren't moving the product, but our products were still going through exports and still going through the retail side. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get more pork into the restaurants in the future, but really, I guess that helped us out a bit as well too. Perfect. So thanks very much for being with us guys and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.